Greetings all and welcome to Margin Call, the podcast and editorial meeting for Quest On Media. I'm your host, Russell Morse. As you might imagine, those of us at Margin Call have been following the story of the migrant caravan closely since reports first emerged in mid-October of a group of people leaving Honduras for the United States. In the weeks since, the caravan has been used as a scare tactic by those on the right leading up to the midterm election, and reports from the caravan itself have been unreliable at best. After a month of traveling on foot across Central America and Mexico, members of the caravan started to arrive at the U.S.-Mexico border in Tijuana. President Trump sent thousands of U.S. troops to the border to fortify, and most recently, U.S. border officials fired tear gas into a group of migrants that included children. This is obviously a convergence of several issues, and we won't be able to address everything on today's show. But we are joined by Shirley Abney, who's been based in Mexico City for some time and encountered members of the caravan earlier this month. Uh, So let me start by welcoming everyone. Shirley, it's great to see you. Amelia Gonzalez joining us again. Uh, And as always, Yiming Piancai behind the curtain, keeping us on task and on time. Uh, Shirley, we've been trying to get you on the show for a while. You and I spoke weeks ago when you were in New York about your experience um, with members of the caravan as they passed through Mexico City. Maybe uh, it would be helpful just to start with some background about what they were doing in Mexico City, how they came there, what your interactions were with them, and, and maybe just as much background as you can give, because I think people think of it as like one large group of people, but there were actually smaller groups, right? Uh, that they weren't all traveling together as they went through Mexico. There was like, there were subdivisions and you were with a smaller group of people. Is that right? Can you explain that a little bit? My ability to provide context will be a little bit limited because there has been so much different, so many different versions of the story that even I don't quite really know how things happen. The situation in Honduras has been pretty dire for a long time. I would say probably ever since the 2009 U.S.-backed coup coup that overthrew a government who was trying to give more power to agrarian resistance groups and was also trying to make changes in labor laws and also trying to find ways to raise how much money went to social programs, basically doing the opposite of what the U.S. likes us to do, people to do in Central America. There we go. I just showed my cards. But anyway, so things have been deteriorating in Honduras for quite some time. And by the time the people came together in the caravan to leave from San Pedro Sula, there were already tens of thousands of Hondurans passing through Mexico or tens of thousands of Central Americans from the Northern Triangle, which is Guatemala, Honduras, El Salvador. Already tens of thousands of uh, migrants passing through Mexico every year. This wasn't like, oh, my God, we're all just going to go to Mexico now. This was if we're all trying to get to the U.S., let's go in a big group because we'll be safer. That was the original rationale for having so many people all go at the same time. It's the second time it's happened. It was a political statement, A, being safe moving through Mexico, and B, hopefully being able to create some kind of political momentum once they reach the border. There have been many suggestions by conspiracy theorists on all sides that this is a setup. There are some people who say that this is, uh, you know, uh, anti, uh, terrible anti-U.S. activists trying to turn U.S. brown. Then there are other people saying that this was Trump trying to stir up media before the elections, and it was done in, in collaboration with the Honduran government. 
I think that probably most likely it was just a bunch of people. This is based on the week I spent with the caravan. Just a bunch of people scared for their lives um, who were like, okay, uh, if somebody's going up to Mexico, through Mexico, I'll do it. And the vast majority of the people that I spoke through were not interested in staying in Mexico. They were going to try to get to the U.S. Right. Well, I mean, that was my response when I first heard reports of words like caravan and huge groups of people. I thought, well, this sounds like propaganda. This sounds like scare tactics. You know, there are mobs of people, you know, headed for the border. Uh, it uh -huh. sounded like right, right wing propaganda uh, initially. And I think that's the context that I heard it in at first. You know, the first outlets that were reporting on it were Fox News. And then, of course, there are subsidiaries in, in the White House now. Uh, but then once <laughs> once I learned a little bit more uh, about it, I think I got some of the context that you're talking about. Obviously, it's not new for, for people to be coming from Central America to the United States. These social issues existed for a long time. But this is a new development. This is a very new mm -hmm. thing to get a group of people that large um, moving together through Mexico. Mm -hmm. uh, how how did you come to encounter them in Mexico City? And what you know was that part of the route? Uh, what, how did you, how did you come to encounter them? So they had been debating whether they were going to be coming through Mexico city. We were hearing yes and no from mostly it was Puebla Sin Fronteras, which is actually, I believe a U.S. based organization, um, that has been providing accompaniment with them and sort of being the, one of the biggest spokesmen to the U.S. newspapers and even Mexican media about the politics of the caravan. Uh, and they were saying that the caravan was going to be coming. Eventually, they did come. They, the Mexican Mexico City Human Rights Commission had about like 48 hours maximum to prepare. They had emergency meetings to figure out what they were going to do. They managed to get a big stadium that is usually the, the following week. It was the stadium for a big music festival. Um, and they managed to get a bunch of different organizations together to get ready to set up tents to hopefully have enough space for everybody coming. By the time the first migrants started, the first refugees, pardon me, started trickling in on, I believe it was Saturday night, they had enough bed space for a thousand people and they knew that they were expecting 6,000 total. In terms of the makeup of the caravan, it originated in Honduras. A whole bunch of Guatemalans also joined as they passed through Guatemala. And then as they were moving through Mexico, the caravan also had a bunch of Salvadorans who were trying to get up north join as well. I would say still predominantly, like definitely more than 80% Hondurans. But um, there were people, also Mexicans, who wanted to cross the border. The idea was it's never safe to try to get across Mexico if you don't have enough money to do it safely, uh, to get to the northern border. So pretty much anyone who was trying to cross or trying to get to the U.S., just hopped on the caravan because it was a safe place to be. At the same time, some people left the caravan. I don't know if you saw that there were a couple transgender and gay youth who decided to split from the caravan because they didn't feel safe within it. Mm -hmm. And there were also some groups of women who decided they felt more comfortable traveling alone than with the caravan. Okay. I noticed that you said migrant and corrected yourself and said refugee. Can you talk a little bit about that distinction and why you feel like it's important to use one term as opposed to another? Sure. The vast majority of them are applying for asylum. I mean, this is the whole thing about whether or not it's legal for them to, A, be crossing through Mexico, and B, be uh, showing up at the U.S. border en masse. And the truth is that it is, according to the U.N., 
always legal to present yourself at any border for asylum. So in my opinion, the first act of violence came from the U.S. when they shut down the mechanisms by which people apply for asylum by deliberately slowing down their processing to about 50 people a day uh, when when the caravan showed up. So migrant is people on the move. Refugee specifically is a way of just drumming in the fact that these are people on the run. Right. As opposed to on the move. Um, and I'll give you an example of one person. There was, while we were there, one of the things, when I say we, I should add that I was working with a collective of deportees and returnees from the U.S., whom I've mentioned on the show before. They're called Otros Trems en Acción. And they were all people who themselves had pretty negative experience with U.S. migration and felt very strong solidarity with refugees coming up from Central America and felt like they were in a position to be able to answer some on answer some questions with pure honesty about what was awaiting them on the border until Mexico City the problem is that the US sent people from the home department of homeland security lawyers to try and dissuade the hondurans from coming to the US and they did so with some pretty convincing arguments they're not going to want you there it's going to be very difficult they may take your kids etc this is stuff that we all know to be true But because of the fact that it was politically motivated, most of the people in the caravan were not in a position to want to trust anybody, especially with an American accent, telling them that they should stay in Mexico and not try to go up north. What was really cool about being with Otros Trems en Acción is that, number one, they're all pretty down-to-earth people. And as opposed to posting themselves outside where the caravan was, they posted themselves right in the thick of everything. Um, and they had a big sign that was hand painted that kept falling down that they like taped to the tent saying no fake news here. We'll tell you what it was like for us. Also, we got really lucky. We got some donations of very, very nice, clean kids clothes. And that meant that we were the only table that was giving out clothes that were clean and made of organic cotton, the kind of clothes we buy for our own babies. And the moms were really excited about it because they said getting cast offs made them feel like cast offs. And, you right. know, the kids had been walking around in the same underwear for a couple of weeks by then. And everybody was sick. The whole caravan was sick. Um, what, kind of, what kind of health issues were they dealing with? Uh, they're, they're from the tropics and there was, they were used, they were hiking and walking up in 104 degree weather. And then there was an unexpected cold snap. And so yeah. just none of them were prepared for the weather and yeah. things spread quickly in a crowded group. I'm, I'm interested in this dynamic uh, I, I'm familiar with the group that you're working with in Mexico City, but I did not know that that's how you came to um, meet some of the people who were in the caravan, because this is a group of people who were living in the United States for many years, right? This organization that you're working with, they were deported, they're mm-hmm. deportees, and now they're living in Mexico City. That is a very different cultural experience from a person uh, walking from Central America who's never been to the United States before even though there's a lot of overlap and they can offer a lot of insight for them. Did mm-hmm. you get to hear some of these interactions? I'm, I'm interested in what their uh, insights might have been, what their guidance or what their advice was for people who were mid-journey <laughs> at this point, based on their own experiences, uh, considering how things went for them. They were like, you guys, it ain't, all, it ain't, it ain't that great up there. <laughs> Trust me. Wow. <laughs> yeah, wow. That's what they had to say. Yeah. Um, they And some of them were people who were returnees rather than deportees, i.e. they came back to Mexico because, for example, they wanted to go to college and couldn't apply for financial aid because they didn't have papers. 
So uh, they didn't all, they, they, but they, again, if, if any of them were here, they would tell us that um, they do not consider, re- they put the idea of returning by choice in quotation marks because it was for a lack of options in the U.S. But right. no, I think that the most powerful conversations were between people from Honduras and people from the U.S. who had been in detention while listening to asylum cases. Because when you're in detention waiting to be deported, very often you're just sitting in the courtroom listening to a bunch of either other people's cases. Mm-hmm. So you kind of end up becoming a courtroom expert in what does and doesn't get a pass from the U.S., which is always looking for an excuse to say that you're not a refugee from violence. You're actually just in the U.S. to make money. So yeah. they were people coming in, like explaining that you need, if you got a death threat, you need to have a voice recording of that death threat. If they killed your dad, you need to have the death certificate. You, you need paperwork to prove that you're on the run from violence because the U.S. immigration system is hell bent on trying to demonstrate that you're making it up so that you could come to the U.S. and work. That's right. why that asylum case is such a big deal. And the truth is that in Mexico, it's a lot easier to apply for asylum. So we were there trying to convince, particularly the parents with kids, because we're so afraid of child separation. We were particularly interested in talking to the parents and channeling them to lawyers and friends that we have in Mexico who might be able to help them apply to asylum. But it was a sketchy thing because you don't want to be telling people what to do. And you don't want to, we can't tell the future. Maybe they would have gotten to the U.S. and it would all been peachy keen and, yeah. you know, Ocasio-Cortez would have led a storm and they all would have been given pillows. But but so we were nervous that we were giving the wrong advice, but we also felt that we did we did feel pretty confident that given the fact that the new administration in Mexico is actually very pro-migration and the new head of migration in Mexico is actually someone who's precisely is looking for excuses to say yes rather than excuses to say no, we knew that we have this brief window in which it would be possible for Hondurans and Salvadorans and anybody from Central America to have help and support if they were to try to apply for asylum here. The problem was that you can't convince, you could convince the families. It was very difficult to convince the young men because most of them need to be able to make their money in dollars because they're going up north in order to send money back to their families. Yeah. So we knew we had a better shot with the women. Well, I, you know, years ago, I guess a decade ago now, the last time, they were talking about building a wall along the border and people were talking about immigration. Uh, Josue and Ryan and I did some report, did a lot of reporting along the border, but we were in Tijuana with a group of people who were members of an evangelical Christian church. Mm -hmm. And almost all of them were people who came from Central America or Southern Mexico to Tijuana with the hope of getting across the border. And then they weren't able to. And then they stayed in Tijuana and found this community there. They all had fascinating stories. And uh, almost all of them were recent converts to evangelical Christianity. They had their own crazy lives. Many of them, you know, experienced all the kind of harrowing experiences you can imagine of a person living on the street in Tijuana. And then, you know, found this church, found a community, got on their feet and decided that they wanted to stay in Mexico, that that Mm -hmm. made sense for them to be in Tijuana. Are you saying that, Possibly that, that, you know, because uh, the government now in Mexico is 
uh, a little more sympathetic to people who are fleeing violence in Central America, that that's a viable option for some people, or that's something that it could be considered as part of a, a solution for what's happening in Central America? I mean, obviously, that's a big question. You can't give a, a blanket answer, but I'm curious about what role Mexico could potentially play if, if it, as you're saying, the government there now is a, a, at least a little more sympathetic. I mean, I remember a time when people were talking about um, migration from Central America and saying, like, well, the southern border of Mexico is the crazy one. You know, that's where mm-hmm. all the violence is happening. That's where people from the Mexican government are abducting people and interrogating people and harming people. Uh, but I, you know, uh, those are not reports that I've heard in the context of this migrant caravan. I'm curious about what the, we talk a lot about the political shifts in the United States in terms of how our leaders feel about uh, immigration, but I haven't heard that much about how Mexico has changed. I'm pretty, I'm pretty pessimistic about Mexico's future in part because of the degree to which you can see how quickly anti, anti Central American fake news has been popping up and all sorts of terrifying troll farms and nasty anti Central American stuff showing up in the Mexican media. Uh, when I say Mexico, I should, I, I may have actually said it by mistake. I meant Mexico City, and people just say Mexico for the city. Mexico City itself has a liberal administration, a liberal member, and a lot of public work. Public works. So our point of view was much more, if you're coming through Mexico City, Mexico City might be your best shot. Here we have the resources, we have the goodwill, and we have a, var- a variety of NGOs that are available to try and help. And But in the rest of the country, I mean... The, there was some woman on the Honduras campaign who complained about the fact that they were just serving them beans, like shitty beans. And she said that to a camera operator. And immediately the entire my Facebook page was just alive with people screaming out, oh, our beans aren't good enough for them. Why don't you just go back to Honduras then? Like, And right. the exact same anti-Mexican discourse you guys are used to hearing in Trump's America, you're now hearing in Spanish in Mexico. Right. So I don't have, and I also think that in the next election, six years from now, I think that it will be my prediction is that we're going to get our Trump or our Bolisaro or one of our, our we're going to get our fascist guy, and right. he's going to win on an anti-Central American platform as the quote-unquote crisis, which in and of itself is a word that makes me crazy because it's not a crisis; it's a response to a crisis. Like there is no crisis around immigration and we can absorb them. Mexico could absorb them. Everyone could absorb them. You know, most of the people I met on the caravan are exactly the kind of people that I was just reading my aunt Antonia or Antonia. And, you know, it's this like hard one, Iowa, Kansas family from somewhere in Lithuania where it's like a mom run family and they're pioneers and three generations in they've made America great. And you know, most of the people that I met on the caravan were these incredible people who had the balls to jump on a train through hell in order to get to uncertain hell because they wanted to give their families a better life. And the, the creepy thing about it was that it was totally the American dream of the 19th century with darker skin. But, well, it's like Toni Morrison has that thing about how the way you become white is by hating on black people, right? Yeah. So the question is, if you're brown and you want to go white, do you get to, do you have to hate on black people or you can hate on black brown people, which is basically what Honduras is supplying? Yeah, I, I mean, what what we've seen in the media, obviously, is not the reality of like what people are actually going through. Um, but something that I was really listening to and also thinking about in general, but especially with regard to this situation is how we use language. 
to describe human beings right. and how to dehumanize them. Right. And um, in, what way, think, in what way? What do you mean? What kind of language? Well, I mean, I've seen so many like satir- satirical videos from like John Oliver and like, you know, like Stephen Colbert, you know, and like Trevor Noah about like the caravan, you know, and they, they make these like very satirical things um there i know they're, they're no way promoting you know what's happening in our country yeah. um but i just i find especially you know for myself i live in new york i'm not you know i'm not physically there of course i trust people like you who, who are actually you know i i don't don't trust you but you know i trust people like you who obviously i'm like okay this person you know cares about human beings but um i everything I see is just still very surface it feels like and yeah. it's still not fully informed like for example this happens this is not you know I mean I'm more of the person who would go toward the conspiracy theory of like midterm elections were happening and um you need a great something to put fear into people so yeah. that way they'll continue to protect you yeah. um so I felt like that's that it was a tactic like for sure, especially yep. when these things are actually happening and people know they're happening, but to use it as a political political move to um, boost yourself and to again restate to your constituents, you know, this is again why you need to you need to protect, you know, what we're yep. what we're creating in in our in our uh, fascist regime regime. Yeah. But um, well, that's what, I mean, that's yeah. what I was getting at at the top of the show is that how difficult it's been to get accurate information for the past month or so about what's actually happening. Who's in the yeah. caravan? Where are they passing through? What is the objective? What are the implications? You know, uh, and that's part of the reason I was so excited about having Shirley on the show. Although I, I, I am a little surprised that I haven't been able to get a lot of reliable information from the caravan because Shirley, you reported that there were more journalists with the caravan than actual <laughs> aid workers right or at least more people with cameras is that are, are they not helping to spread I mean, information there were the, the it's interesting what uh, amelia was just saying about language i even hear it when i say refugees because you're describing seven thousand people each one of whom has a unique identity and a unique set of reasons for why they're going to the u.s to begin with and there have been a couple filmmakers whose work I've really liked, less on a macro, but at least on the level of um, introducing us to characters. Like there's this one woman who started on the caravan with two kids, and now she's got five. Somehow she just adopted three on the caravan. And oh. they call themselves the Lopez family, which is named after a big soap opera family. And they're like, yeah, we're the Lopez. And you see her piling into the caravan. And, you know, these guys are all Caribbean. They're singing and dancing. And then they're like, and then I got raped 42 times. And then they start singing and dancing again. And they're just like cool people. Um, you you snuck but, that in there, Shirley. But that that is, or and I don't know if this is a reliable report or not, but there has been information about some predatory behavior. And, and even though this big group of people have gotten together to avoid that kind of predatory behavior, that some of that, uh, has still been going on within the caravan, oh, sure. or is that not fair to say? Okay, no, that's it's. I mean, the 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 story that I heard, there was one woman who asked us for a morning after pill. We asked if it was intentional, like we were like, sure, what happened? Do you want your boyfriend to come with you, et cetera? And she was like, it wasn't my boyfriend. Her eyes teared up. We were like, let's not ask more questions. Mm-hmm. Um, Josue, who is a sixteen-year-old who decided to leave the caravan and come with us, said when I asked him. He told us about, he said that early on, somebody tried to rape a woman and the entire caravan beat him up and then turned him over to authorities. So um, if there is 
sexual predation within the caravan and violence within the caravan, uh, I would definitely say it's still less than what people are getting on the streets in the hometowns they ran from. And B, it's a little bit confusing. And this is one of those moments when you feel yourself becoming a soundbite in Fox News in the sense that, you know, you ask somebody at the caravan up north and they'll just say the todos, there's there's every different kind of person there. You ask people here and they'll go into detail about the different kinds of bad people that were on the caravan because they're here now. They don't need to worry about reprisals. And what I've heard from people from in the caravan who were here is there there's a lot of different types of people. There were some predatorial people from El Salvador who shut up with guns who were running the show. There were certainly people who either are working for the U.S. or are being paid to inform for the U.S. And we know that because that's already been admitted. It was on NBC News. So there are paid informants from the U.S. There are probably undercover people who are Mexican. There are undercover people from Honduras who are paying Hondurans money to go back home. So there's a shit ton of different actors in the caravan. And I don't particularly love the American left percept description of the caravan. They're like, it's all women and children. It's all women and children. Because it's not. It's 70% men, about 30% women and children. Um, And the 70% men are, I think, 60% of those, as best as they can figure out, are between the ages of 18 and 30. Now, you get any group of men, majority 18 and 30, you know, in the U.S., it's called a frat party, and, it's, and it let, re, leads to a Supreme Court justiceship. But that is never a good set of demographics for you to be able to keep people safe in a large group, especially as they get more and more desperate. So while I was at the caravan, I can definitely tell you we were only passing our stuff out to women and children. Uh, no, we were only passing our stuff out to women. That was one way that we just kept ourselves from getting mobbed. Um, and during that time, there was no doubt, you know, we, we had a couple of men yelling at us because they thought it wasn't fair. We had a couple of women that we know were coming back around in order to get more backpacks because they were handing them off to men who were either taking it from them or, or they were selling it to them. We had a guy later come up with a video, look, she sold the backpack. And we were like, look, we can't control what she does with it when we get to it. It's like, she got 500 pesos for that backpack. And, you know, what could we say? We were like, well, you know, we're empowering female entrepreneurship on a micro scale level. <laughs> nice. <laughs> but, and then another woman came back crying and I don't think she was faking it because someone stole her net backpack. Uh, yeah. There were people coming to us saying I had shoes, but someone stole them. Like, it's not a good scene. However, that does not mean that we shouldn't let the caravan in. It means we have to protect the vast majority of the people in the caravan who are innocent and trying to just survive from the bad people in the caravan. <laughs> Yeah, that is also part of what we need to do. But I don't think it's a good strategy for people to be pretending that it's a whole bunch of angels walking around like Christ, because then you just find the guys that are being shitty and you can refute the entire argument. It's easier for someone who wants to be like a predator to, of course, prey on people who are vulnerable. So like, sure, I don't think anyone should be surprised. You know what I mean? Like, even if this were to come up and they would be like, oh, but there's bad people in there. We're like, duh. Like yeah. who like who are the bad people gonna take advantage of? The people who are like protected and yeah. you know, like know their surroundings or not just know their surroundings, but you know, have some sort of sense of you know, like confidence and where they are, like of course not. Families, people who are willing to do anything to protect themselves or willing I mean, if if you're willing to like be around strangers really, because that's your safest place, like 
what, where, you know, obviously what is the reality that they're coming from? So I think if, if people were to then say like, oh, well, the, there are bad people in the caravan. Well, like, yeah, like probably, that's probably yeah, the best place to be. Yeah. 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 It's thousands but, of people with no vetting process and in strange places who are incredibly vulnerable. It, it right. Makes, like, yeah, I mean, we do it in the United States. We prey on everyone who's, <laughs> we're like, hello, pray. Right? I mean, there's still a lower percentage of bad people there than there are in, say, the U.S. Senate. Right. Um, Boom. that was crazy making watching those kinds of descriptions of the press and uh, and also you know a couple of times people would come up to me with these sort of handmade or hand cut typed offers to basically they were being given offers i can be your coyote i can take you up north it'll cost this much money i can keep you safe and they'd be like do you think this is trustworthy and we'd be like no, <laughs> like we don't know who was sending those notes out. We don't know who was making those offers. I definitely, there was a guy named Gilbert and Gilbert, if you're listening to this podcast, I see you. There was a guy named Gilbert at the caravan, spoke English perfectly, had no tats, tall guy from Honduras, lived in the U.S. for a long time, said he had a lawyer. Every instinct in me screams out that he was a provocateur, that he was from the U.S. Like the history of Latin America in, in, you know, in Mexico, on top of everything else, in Mexico, there was actually footage of it in the protests against about the killings of the 43. We have video footage of the police in uh, changing out of their uniforms into normal person clothes and then going and throwing stuff at the National Palace. Like the idea of creating violence, having the state create a violence in order to justify violence is something that we don't have to call a conspiracy theory anymore right. if we even know the tiniest bit about how the U.S. infiltrates movements. Black Lives Matter now, the civil rights movement and the Black Panthers early 40 years ago, every single civil rights movement in Central America. I haven't seen any really interesting investigative work around what's provoking the violent actions by the caravan members up north. I want to know who first got everybody rushing that border. Yeah. Mm. You know, and when I've talked to Hondurans here who played asylum, they've been debated. There were a couple of them were like, no, I'm telling you, it's just, they're tired. They're sick. They're desperate. And then there was one guy who was like, unless Gilbert was there, like right. it's all about this guy, Gilbert. Um, but uh, there, there, there is stuff going on with the caravan now, again, that we, we don't know. That's pretty confusing. And even the people who are trying to do their best to show the humanity of the men and women and children on the run, including myself possibly on this podcast, are telling a lot of, in Mexico, we call them pobrecito stories, like poor thing. Mm -hmm. You know, like, oh, they're so scared. They're so sad. They're so sick. It's so wretched. But when we were there, I mean, there was a, a little girl named Brittany who had this thing where she would take all the reject clothes, put them in a pile and would not leave us alone until we swung her into it. And her parents were completely freaked out because they kept on being afraid she would hurt herself. And she kept insisting that we swing her higher and swing her higher. And then her sister, who was about twice her size, made us do the same thing. And we were all exhausted and she was there for three solid days. I swear to God, that kid did not sleep. She just jumped around. She insisted on giving us all hugs goodbye every single time. 
Um, there was, you know, there was this one woman who came over just, and there was a, there was a trans woman who came over. She found out we were using nail polish to mark people. And she was mad that we were only giving nail polish to the kids because she wanted her nails done. And then when I tried to do her nails, she was like, oh, thank God you're a do-gooder because you could not do this work. Like the people (laughs) were funny. They were smart. They were ambitious. They were scared. They were asking all the right questions. And again, they're not victims except for the part where we're victimizing them. They're the bravest people you could possibly imagine. You think I would walk through Mexico ever in the places they went to? Like, you know, and you can be desperate without being brave and you can be brave without being desperate. And these people, I think, are both. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's an important point. Um, All right. I I only mention uh, the predatory behavior because I'd heard some reports and it's another, I think, important clarifying point. And everything is it's very difficult to talk about things because it's such a divisive issue and it's being used by so many different people to prove uh, or at least support so many different agendas. So I just wanted to get a better sense of what was going on, but that makes sense. Although you were making a point about filmmakers. Uh, oh, and now that's predatory that. behavior. That is what uh, the, the very, very wonderful Pamela Yates, uh, who did one of the better documentaries, very short about this. I can send it to you guys. She calls it extractive filmmaking. When you just go somewhere, you pull out what you need and you leave it strip mined. And I think especially now that mining is something people talk about is a great way of describing extractive journalism, extractive filmmaking. Um, and you're, extractive t- you're describing the people, some of the people that you saw accompanying the caravan who had cameras in their hands. Yeah. That's, that's what they're there to do. They're like, this is a sensational story. I want to get it and get out of here. Extractive jur- journalism it used to be known as journalism. You know, the other thing that I was going to say about the, the documentaries and the, the journalists, et cetera, is that, I'm also, I was in Mexico, so you also have to be very, very alert to whatever, because, you know, Mexico has a state-run media. The, the Televisa is owned by the PRI, which is one way or another still in power until about 48 hours from now. So what have for, I'll give you an example. As we were walking out with all our stuff, we saw the, all the spotlights set up. Usually the ones with money are the ones to watch out for. All the spotlights set up and also, you know, a newscaster in heels. Whenever you see a newscaster wearing high heels, that's a sign too. So there was a woman with high heels. She was interviewing a mother and the baby and the baby was just, I swear to God, the baby was mugging for the camera about how shitty his life was. I swear to God, that kid should have gotten like Screen Actors Guild stuff. But he was crying and the woman was like, oh, so you're very cold. You're very sad. You're very scared. What are you going to do? And then she, <laughs> but the two women that I was with who were pretty righteous and angry, uh, who were, you know, in their twenties and pissed off at the world in a, way, in a way you could only be in your twenties, looked at each other and were like, uh-uh. And they flanked the reporter and just gave her the evil eye because the reporter actually was like, I want to help you. And she pulled out a 20 peso note which is about 96 cents, handed it to the Honduran woman on national TV. And they eagle-eyed her, and she looked at them and was like, did a retake, and then pulled out 200 pesos, which is still only 10 bucks. But the idea of handing someone $10 on national TV as a way of addressing a sociopolitical phenomenon is what I'm talking about when I say predatory behavior. So I would actually say on this count, the U.S. press might not even be the worst. 
So Josue was this kid, pobrecito, crying, covered up in a hood, not knowing what he was going to do, unaccompanied minor on the caravan, and we convinced him to apply for asylum in Mexico. And over like three days, he has transformed from being this poor baby, we have to save him, to a fucking 16-year-old teenager. Which means, and, and I just want to say that he's an incredible kid, but this is one of those things when we're seeing this kid, that started out for us as an emblem of a problem and sort of a fuck you to Trump. Like we were like, you're not getting this one. But the problem is that this is the ultimate irony of trying to work when you ask whether Mexico is a hospitable home for refugees. He's an unaccompanied minor. If we didn't try to do anything for him, he could just live the rest of his life in Mexico, earning his money off the books, doing everything off the books, not getting an education. But we want to have him to have have papers because we think this is just a window. And we want him to make real money and get his education. But I can't even have this kid stay in my house. He can get plucked and, and, and sold off into child slavery, which has happened to people in the caravan. He can get sucked and sold off to child slavery by narcos. But he can't be in my house because, because I don't have legal guardianship of him. That's child trafficking. So everything we do, we have to do by the book. And now you'll appreciate this, Russell. We have to convince a 16-year-old kid that what he wants is to live in a group home where he's not going to be allowed a cell phone and is not going to be allowed to leave for a month. <laughs> Good luck. Good luck with that. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, because otherwise he won't get papers and he'll, and once they clamp down, he'll get shipped back to Honduras. Uh, we'll revisit this again. Obviously it's not over. Everything is still very much in flux at the border and there are so many more questions to come. Uh, but in terms of the caravans at this point, I think this is a good, a good conversation, a very important conversation to have. Thank you, Shirley, for being here. Amelia, thank you for being here. Thanks, of course, to our producer, Heming, as always. And thanks to all of our listeners. Until next time, quest on, everybody. This episode of Quest on Media's Margin Call was produced in Richmond, California.